my hope would be that it's a, a specific story that gives people an opportunity to have a very universal conversation. It kind of makes me think of songwriting again, which is something that I've, I feel like, and you probably would concur, that if you want something to have universal appeal, the best path is not to try and write it universally. Mm. It'll usually just end up sort of shallow and vague. Usually the best thing is to write it as specific about your experience as you can. Mm. And that often is the connection point for other people. Because there, there are songs that I feel really connected with that I have heard that reference details that make no sense to me. Maybe they say somebody's name that I don't know or an, an activity that I don't do. But because they went specific, their honesty with the feelings or whatever it is they're trying to portray were so much more clear that that was a, a connection point for me. listeners of all ages, welcome to episode 47 of the Jolly Thoughts podcast. Today I'm joined by a good friend, a legit good friend, a person that I have been a roommate of and with several times and a bandmate of and with several times and he still will actually answer my phone calls, the one, the only, Jeff Summers. Jeff is a uh, local worship leader in the same town in which I live. He's also a pastor. Uh, he's also an artist, and he is a children's book author as of, like, well, pretty much right now. So we're going to talk about his first book that he's just released. It's called Avery and the Special Shoe. We're going to find out the story behind it, uh, where you can get it. And, uh, and then we're actually going to, in my opinion, not that awkwardly, maneuver our way over to talking about uh, most recent worship research project that I've been able to be a part of, uh, which has been a long time in the coming. So that's going to be the back half of our conversation. Uh, so you'll hear a little bit about worshipleaderresearch.com. And uh, we don't really talk about whether we're concerned about the term worship leader for legal reasons. We leave that off the table. But uh, I hope you're going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, Jeff's a great guy, and this book is really, is really meaningful. So without any further ado, my conversation with Jeff Sunny Summers. Beat it. I'm not talking to my my friend. I'm talking to my dog. This is the first uh, time, ladies and gentlemen, that I've tried to record a Jolly Thoughts podcast uh, in person. Uh, and the reason that we decided to do it in person is because Jeff and I have a, reg- a regularly uh, kind of s- a scheduled coffee uh, encounter that, that tends to happen. So he decided to drink his coffee before he came this morning so that he's fully caffeinated, ready to go. But nonetheless, we're, we're in person, we're live. And uh, so this is my friend, uh, good friend, an excellent human being all around, Jeff Summers. And w- we go uh, way back and have lots of things that we could easily talk about. But the thing that we want to mostly talk about today, focus on largely, is um, the book that he just released. Now, we're recording this on uh, April 13th. Is this is this going to be available to the public? 
Uh, technically, pre-orders are live now. Okay. Um, but inventory is not here yet, and it's supposed to be probably tomorrow. So okay. Uh, then we'll be a little more aggressive with saying, "All right, you can buy one now because I have them in my hands." <laughs> All right, and and the and that was my dog shaking in the background. Beat it. Uh, and the uh, the thing that we're talking about is a book, and the book is called Avery and the Special Shoe. Um, tell us a little bit about the book, man. Well, obviously, by the title, it's a theological textbook, you can tell. But... <laughs> uh, no, it's a children's book, and it's a story, I don't know, inspired, I guess about or inspired by my daughter, um, and kind of, um, she wears a brace, and I, we can talk about the whole story however you want it to unfold, mm. and ever since she was little, we've just called it her special shoe, and uh, I've always kind of been a goofball storyteller with my kids and um making up bedtime stories and that kind of thing so um as the story unfolded which I'm sure we'll talk about I just decided that I wanted to have a story to tell her about this shoe that she wears and uh then when I got it finished uh I thought hmm, maybe somebody else could see themselves in this book too or it might be useful for other people to try to have some discussions about it, about stuff that makes people unique, and so I just uh, decided to see if I could make it a real thing, I guess. Right. Well, job done. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, obviously there's lots of time, folks. We can talk about what what the special shoe is and uh, what went into the book. We can talk about the story, so like the process of you know, getting the book, but also, you know, why the book originally. And then also, I think some people might be interested um, particularly like how the book so like you know like how did how did it come from an idea to actually having something you can physically hold in your hand that's changed a lot for uh people over the last i mean really kind of 10 years in particular about how that's a possibility for people mm. um so but let's let's start at the beginning and say so avery is your your daughter right uh you got a, you've got a couple of a couple of kids and avery is your your youngest and she's your daughter and uh, there's a reason that she ends up wearing the special shoe so what is that reason so I guess <clears throat> when she was, uh, I guess when she first started walking, so she was probably one and change or a little before two, somewhere around there. Uh, I would say we, but more my wife, Andrea, started to notice something in her gait and when she was learning to walk. Andrea's a rehab assistant, so she works in physiotherapy and occupational therapy. And uh, so she notices a lot more than probably I would. And she just sort of said, I think I'm going to book her an appointment with physio and see what's going on. Short story long, um, she was diagnosed with CP, cerebral palsy, um, at, at that age. And so, uh, sitting in the room when they first say that for me anyway, like the floor fell out of the room because... I didn't know anything about it. I knew a couple of people who I'd met that with that diagnosis and what it looked like in those cases. I had no idea what to expect, and I didn't know if it was progressive or any of that kind of stuff. Um, so all in the span of, you know, eight seconds, all of those things kind of come rushing in. And you're like, is this a wheelchair someday? Is this cause of death someday? All of that stuff, so... Uh, as we went on and kind of learned more about it and not to, I don't want to have any, uh, medical people writing into your show to correct me, but, um, what we've learned over time is basically CP is a brain injury that occurs in the womb. It's very much similar, if not 
exactly the same as a stroke. It's just a, a blood event kind of that happens in the brain. And it's different for everybody that experiences a kind of a, a wide-ranging category with different results. Uh, in Avery's case, she'd be what they would call hemiplegic. So it affects one side of her body, very similar to somebody who had a stroke. Mm -hmm. um, for her, it's her right side. And it means basically way that I try to explain it simply is the right side of her body doesn't work as well as the left. And uh, so just some of the signals that the brain sends to all the tiny little muscles and fibers that operate don't get through. So it means that it's a little harder for her to operate those parts. And for her, it's more in her lower half than her upper half. Um, and also because those signals aren't getting through those muscles aren't used as often and they so you're constantly fighting atrophy they call it tone in the cp world that's where it gets tight or hard or inflexible so in her case on her foot she naturally wants to be up on her toe her foot is very straight so we're constantly doing stretches and physio and exercise to try to keep those muscles loose and tender and stretched so that uh, they don't sort of end up permanently in that position just because they're not used as often as the rest of us because they are not receiving any signal to say you should do this um so the shoe that she wears is called an afo it's that which stands for for ankle foot orthotic and it's molded to her foot and it's molded in the position that they want her foot to stay in um so it it does a couple of things it holds her foot in a stretch, it holds it in the right position. So it's constantly combating that tone by keeping it stretched. Um, it also, the one that she has right now has a bit of a, I think it's carbon fiber in the back of it that provides a little bit of a uh, spring action after every step. So it will, when she takes a step and then lifts her foot to step again, it kind of boosts her step a little bit. So it kind of aids her gait as well and it does just help with mobility a little better it's it, like if you were to spend your day walking flat-footed on one side and up on your toes on the other that would be a, a very different walking experience than both of your feet doing the, what we expect them to do so it puts it in that position um for her walking and running and all of those kind of things um yeah, so they're like as far as CP goes, they they would say there's five levels. She would be a level one, which is on the bottom. She's she doesn't have any cognitive issues or speech issues or anything, and she can. A lot of people wouldn't even know or notice if they sort of met her casually that anything is different about her, kind of thing. And I know that there are a number of people with a lot different struggles and symptoms from CP than ours that are. I'm sure way more challenging than what we deal with, but uh, I always say like everybody's bucket is a different size, but full is full for you. So your own, your own experience is all you, you have kind of mm -hmm. thing. So for us, this has been our world since she was about two. Right. And so the, that's where the special shoe part of the story comes from. If that yeah. is enough of a background for how we got here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then the reason that you, you know, you, you feel inclined possibly 
to not only tell a story, I guess we'll start by telling, because it's a story that you create for her mm-hmm. in, in effect. It's not, you know, it's not like I've got an idea to market something to the world. It's right. an idea that you have for your child. And so the solution or that you're trying to bring uh, maybe to, a, if you want to call it a problem or an opportunity or whatever, is the fact that she wears this shoe and that has the opportunity to either make her feel good about herself or bad about herself to kind of single her out uh, in a way that's negative or in a way that makes her special is this kind of a are you were, were you already starting to see her feel awkward about the the gear that she was using or was this sort of a preemptive move for you i would say probably both and mm-hmm. like once she started going to school i would say andrea and i had inward anxiety and outward confidence when it came to her like we're not gonna make it a thing and we're not gonna uh, introduce the possibility to her that this could uh, be a challenge socially or whatever. But inside, you put her on the school bus and wave and go, man, I hope kids are nice, you know? Right. And we all know that um, a lot of them are, <laughs> including mine on their worst days. Um, so yeah, uh, it w- it had started, there were some questions starting to happen like, is this forever? Am I going to wear this forever? Mm-hmm. And why do I have to wear it? And we, you know, we've had open conversations about that as much as you can age appropriately all along. Um, but so some of those questions are starting to happen. So we were having conversations with her about trying to help her develop her own language for answering those questions. Cause if you've ever been around little kids, you know, that directness is not a challenge for them They're just if they see something they think is weird they just like what's up with that like they'll just come right at it <laughs> for so, sure um so we had sort of talked through what are your answers and one of them was always i don't want to talk about it we we're like that's okay you can that can if you don't feel like it and just say yeah i don't want to talk about it let's move on mm-hmm. and that's your right kind of thing and then from there it was sort of what's uh What's a simple answer you can give? It's like, it helps me, it helps me keep my heel flat on the ground so I can walk better or something to that effect. Um, so we had, we'd sort of started having those conversations. She had started asking some of those questions and I, I guess coupled with that was you're just looking around for help in any way you can when you're you know, uh, you're learning alongside her about what this whole thing is like. Like the first time that she got introduced to an AFO was also the first time I got introduced to an AFO. So I'm not any further down the road than her. Mm -hmm. So most of parenting, you think, well, at least I have some experience and knowledge. I'm a little further ahead than you. So I can share that in this case, we're kind of, well, let's figure it out together, you know? Um, so with other things that kids deal with, we've always found it useful to find a good book that we can all read. Like if somebody's having anxiety about something or something about growing or bullying or who, whatever the issue happens to be, there oftentimes is a great kids book that you can use to sort of anchor the conversation or that kind of thing. I didn't see one that was sort of uniquely tailored to this situation kind of thing so I just thought well I'm a I'm story guy like maybe I can make one that would help us have the conversation 
and then help her sort of see herself in a story somewhere. Mm-hmm. I feel like that trend is happening a lot now and that representation is happening all over the place and it's not uncommon to see every kind of kid and person in kids books or even in adult television or whatever but just our sort of unique specific situation not necessarily there so I thought it would be great if there was something where she could see herself and then further that I thought well if it went well enough like maybe it could be useful for uh other people other kids for example as a how quickly did you get to that idea like like i guess in the process like were you already i mean because you're an illustrator who i mean you, you do physical but you often in the last little while have spent most of your time probably in the digital realm mm-hmm. so are you already thinking so like you know by the time she's five or six you have like a, a storyline in, in mind have you already started doing sketches like what was the actual kind of like how quickly was this well, this could actually be useful for somebody else as well yep. Um, I did start out thinking, I'm just going to make this for us kind of thing. I had done a book for her brother where when he was, uh, when he was little and learning to talk like a lot of kids, he had a bunch of weird pronunciations for different words that we thought were cute and funny. And we thought, I I don't want to forget these, you know? So I just made this book. Uh, his name is Rowan. So the book is called Rowanese and it was just a (laughs) glossary of terms of the stuff that he said. So I just drew little pictures of spaghetti and wrote sugabi which is what he used to call spaghetti or <laughs> and what i will always call it now. right so i just had this and i just you know i sent away to some big box store i can't even remember that would print photo books and just got three or four copies you know a couple for his grandparents and whatever just as a, a keepsake for us kind of thing mm-hmm. which i kind of thought oh i'll do that for this too once this story is done maybe i can just illustrate something and get a copy made for her and she could bring it to school or that sort of thing so that was where I started so I was picking away at sketching and doing some stuff for sure um and I guess once it got finished the story end of it and I showed it to a couple of people there was sort of a um there was good feedback and then like maybe this really could be a thing and I wonder if it would be useful to the folks at the rehab center that she goes to in Fredericton that they could, you know, share it with families there or the orthotist that she goes to and that, that sort of thing. And so the idea just kind of evolved from there. Um, and then I had a struggle with being able to execute the illustration to a level that I felt like I didn't see my own drawing anymore. You know, you're a songwriter as well as am I occasionally. And uh, I feel like when you really um, you write a song, there comes a point if it's a good enough song that you're happy with that. I guess the way I would describe it is like you hear a demo back or whatever and you go like, oh, it sounds like a song now. Like it doesn't like I I get to have a separation from I can no longer see the chisel marks that I was making right I see the actual it's thing. like oh it is, it exists as a thing for good or for ill it's a thing right. and I I couldn't get to that point with the illustrations mm-hmm. as that's the experience that I was having is like it just I still see my own handwriting all over it kind of thing um, 
so then I had uh, Megan Smith is uh, she's from I guess she's originally from Ontario but she lives in Halifax is a singer songwriter and who I had always sort of known through music circles and enjoyed her stuff she's got uh, I probably a number of people in our area would know it snowed that Christmas song it's pretty hard to break into the like Christmas <laughs> standards thing but that one's pretty close it's a good one has done very well uh she won a Juno for best new artist a few years ago she's ECMA winner and she's got a young family too and has been spending a lot more of her time uh in the visual arts world so I had been following what she was doing because I liked her art too and we'd interacted maybe a few times online and I had seen um she illustrated another children's book and I was just like hmm maybe maybe I could reach out to somebody else to take a crack at this mm. and also could be a cool connection, both local, both East Coast Canadians, mm -hmm. musicians, whatever. Um, so I sent it to her and was like, I don't, I don't know what you think, but um, would you be interested in this at all? And she grabbed a hold of it right away. I was like, I love this story. I love the story behind the story. I want to do it. Let's, let's go kind of thing. So then I was like, oh, here we go. I guess this is going to be a real thing. So, Because right. um, that kind of it upped the um, level of responsibility almost to the project. At that that's point right. Time, right. Yeah. It's not just for your, for your uh, grandparents anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so then, uh, then you're starting to think, of, is this a real thing that other people might be interested in? And I guess I'm going to find out if we're going to go this route. So. Right. It's interesting. Have you ever noticed that it does seem like there aren't a lot of author illustrators. Yeah. Uh, is that just a, I mean, I don't know if you put much reflection into that cause you are a very good drawer, um, drawer. Uh, <laughs> you, you can do the drawings. You've done draw good. Um, you can, I mean, you've done some, you do very, very good work, uh, but for some reason you weren't, it wasn't, it wasn't even just that you were like, you wanted to bring this to the next level in terms of like, I, I want to make this marketable before that you were just like, well, I, I don't think I don't seem to be, I don't seem to have what it takes to make this come alive. Why do you think, that might be the case. I don't know. I think there probably is like there, there would definitely be some space between Megan and I skill level, like candidly speaking, sure. like she's better at it. Than I am. <laughs> but at the same time, like when it comes to, uh, children's literature and illustration, like stylistically, it's all over the road. And to say, there is no object objective skill standard because some of the like really crudely drawn stuff is done on purpose and comes out really great, right? right like my kids they're... are obsessed with like Diary of a Wimpy Kid or whatever. And right. Like, that, that would I I almost can do that. Right. Uh, so it, like you say, it's not as though you have to necessarily be, uh, you know. I'm trying to think of a famous artist right now, but anyway, you don't have to be great. Yeah, like a Dave Pilkey that does Dogman or Captain Underpants or whatever. Like those are. Right. almost intentionally meant to look like a kid drew them. Right. So so there is, you know, room for that too. Right. I think it was, I, I don't know, I think the struggle for me was just the, I wanted, <laughs> I wanted it to feel like a real book and I couldn't not see something I drew every time I looked at it. Right. Um, and maybe that's just me. And maybe if I, you know, pursue this further or do it again, it may end up that I actually do give it a crack one of these times I did find out in, in, you know, part of the journey into 
publishing a book, I guess, is a lot of traditional publishers want to choose the illustrator for the book. Mm. So I had already had the relationship with Megan and we were well underway and I, the sketches that were coming back I was really happy with and it was great and I thought the story, the connection between the two of us was good and then started having some sort of initial publishing conversations and then what I found out quickly was if they like your manuscript they're going to tell you who's going to illustrate it and most times they're not going to let you decide or bring a package deal now maybe if you're Robert Munch you can go say this is how it's going to go it's check over best <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but for somebody starting out like that that I wouldn't necessarily get that choice right interesting so before going a whole lot further with that I just decided I think this is how I want to do it um, to self-publish it essentially with this person and right. with this so if that means traditional publishing is not necessarily an option at the start then so be it kind of thing well, we'll talk about publishing in a second because I want to but I'm, just, I'm curious one more thing and I'm writing one book does not uh, you know I'm asking you questions kind of about generalities I don't yep. know how much you know about these kinds of things but I'm curious to know if there's any if you've seen any at least kind of reciprocity in the process of like between author and illustrator so in other words if you have a manuscript and you send it to an illustrator and they decide that for this page I'm going to do this drawing and then the drawing comes back is it does it ever kind of cause you to reevaluate certain word choices that you might have made like can you see how that is something that could be part of the process so like if they come back with a drawing that's like oh now instead of saying exactly like this maybe i want to tweak it to say a little bit more like this you know it's almost like a like a ping pong process in the creativity yeah i could see that happening i i don't know that it did in this case cuz right. i kind of hammer and tonged the story for a long while right. like i'd have to open my phone and look at my notes app to see when the file was created but right. it's probably been 2 plus years right. since the idea started till and here. it's it's pretty like this book in particular is pretty spare so like you're not like there's not tons of like ex, you're not a it's not an alice in wonderland where you have paragraph on paragraph it's like you know very kind of like so you have to every word is kind of like pretty loaded right yes how it's done and i kind of it, it rhymes and it has sort of a dr seuss lilt to it so right i had i sort of given myself constraints that word choices this one might be better, but this one has the right amount of syllables. So what do I do here, you know? And how do I keep it um, accessible to kids, but right. not pander or, like, squeeze the um, beauty, creativity, like, turn of phrase out of it just to try to keep it simple or all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I guess to get back to your question, I... I definitely could see that happening, especially if like I, I've got wheels turning on a follow up that kind of is more connected to her brother. It's only fair, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> and in that process, I could see like I would I wouldn't I'd like to work with Megan again. I haven't talked to her about it yet, but if it, if that was the case, for example, I could see this time, you know, sending her an outline and saying send me back some sketches of what you see when you read this or whatever and doing that more in tandem right whereas this one was kind of done and then illustrated some stuff did happen that um sort of changed perspective of it for me like sure like she brought 
an angle to it where kind of th throughout the book, once Avery puts on the quote unquote special shoe, there's always this sort of um, kind of whimsical thing happening around it visually. Like there are little butterflies or stars like sort of wrapped around it. So it, it always has this sort of imaginary magic connected to it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when she's trying it out and trying to jump like a bunny, she has these sort of like a hint of bunny ears that come up over her. She's riding her bike. There's sort of a rainbow following her. So, right. so she brought that. Did you, 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 so that wasn't preloaded. That was no, something she was like, I, she basically just said, I want it to seem like yeah. there's, there's sort of a, a hint of magic connected to it. Cause the book sort of sets it up as her discovering this thing as a, this mysterious shoe I found in my closet. What does it do? You know? Right. Um, so those kind of things were cool to see happen for somebody else to read it and say, this is what happens in my brain when I read these words. So, yeah, that's fast. Fascinating. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I could spend just like another hour just asking questions about that. We won't though. So self-publishing then, so, or, or publishing in general. Mm -hmm. So what are some like, so now it us across the finish line to where we are today. And then you can maybe mention a few things that you learned along the way. You've already mentioned one about, about how next time I'll have the conversation with my illustrator before I necessarily pull the trigger on it. But, right. But uh, yeah, so so now you've you've gone ahead and decided to do a self-publish on this. Did you do a Kickstarter? So what I actually ended up doing was uh, a lot of help actually from my sister, Jillian, uh, who kind of lives in the events, promotions, marketing, that world. And... Uh, so she jumped in early and was like, let's do this thing. You know, she did her thing. <laughs> and uh, so we did sort of a, like a soft or offline fundraising investor support to try to uh, fund some of the illustration costs and the uh, production costs and that kind of thing. So um, I didn't actually ever sort of take it public and crowdsource it necessarily. Mm -hmm. We kind of went strategically after a few people who we thought might have the means and the heart to want to be interested in it so mo like i would say three quarters of the way to the full cost we sort of funded ahead of time so we would have a, a place to start at least mm -hmm. um so that was the route that i took in this case right but could have just as easily done the same thing and made it public and sort yeah. of pre-sold it's what uh, a lot of it seems to be like what a lot of people are doing, but it's, mm -hmm. it's not it's not the only way across the finish line. What did you use for a publishing source? Like how how are these books now physically in hand? Um, there's a bunch of different options, obviously, and again, not an expert, but I have done. Um, you know, if you're listening to this and haven't done it before and are thinking about it, I maybe exactly. have done more googling than you, and that's about <laughs> it. But so uh, one of the options, like you can self-publish through Amazon. They right. have. Uh, KDP, it's called Kindle Direct Publishing, and they basically print on demand for you. So somebody goes and makes an order, they print the book and send it to them, mm -hmm. which is pretty slick, convenient. Obviously, they take a piece of the pie on that end, but mm -hmm. also the only option with KDP is soft cover paperback. They don't do hardcover books, and I from the get go had just had it in my head that I wanted it to sit on her shelf and keep up with all of the other quote unquote real books there. I wanted it to be. Um, a hardcover book at a certain size that looked like the other books that she loved sort of thing. Sure. So I had my head set on hardcover. Um, so I explored a few options. I, my preference was to as local as I could be, you know, like concentric rings, like what qualifies as local. And uh, so if you want to go to China, there are a lot of options and they usually are cheaper. 
Um, there's a ton of, and there are a number of brokers that would say work out of a Canadian office and will connect you with a publisher after you describe the project and say, you can get it printed here and they'll sort of broker that deal for you. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up with a company that is just a, a book printing company and they're out of the Montreal area. So they're in Canada and they, part of the reason I like them is I looked at some samples of stuff that they've done and it looked good. And also they will do um, a lot smaller runs than other companies. So if you just want to order a hundred copy, copies, they'll do that where others start at 2000, 5,000 or 10,000 kind of thing. So if you're, you have, I have no idea how this is going to go and I have very little money to start with <laughs> like that can be a little prohibitive obviously your unit price is going to be a lot less if you can order ten thousand, but that means you might have to have forty thousand dollars in the bank to get started or whatever so and you might have a lot of boxes of books in yeah. your basement because you and i both have done cd printings at those levels and have <clears throat> then moved boxes of cds from one house to another when we've moved from that house i so. still have those rubbermaid totes in my basement right now <laughs> yeah that's good times. Yeah, so I ended up with these guys from Montreal, and they, so far so good. I'm, I have my proof in hand, and then the yes. others are supposed to arrive this I'm, week. I'm looking at the proof right now, and it is absolutely beautiful. So do you, I mean, it's really, really, uh, it looks great. I, I can't wait for my daughter, my own daughter, to read this. Uh, well, not just because it's a great book, but because she also knows Avery. Mm. Um, so... Do you have a, a digital version of this that's going to be available as well, or physical only? So far, physical only. I haven't looked into that yet, and it, it definitely a possibility. Yeah. If uh, if families are more of the Kindle iPad type, it wouldn't be a very difficult step because, I mean, everything right. lives in the digital world anyway. Now, Megan did hand-do a lot of this stuff. She's a, a digital artist as well, but... She kind of had a vision for how she wanted the colors to go in this and did a lot of hybrid, like half digital, half like pencil crayon kind oh, of cool. stuff. So, um, but it finishes in the digital realm, so it wouldn't be difficult to turn it into a digital version. I love this. So a title is Avery in the special shoe, but the, the uh, I don't know what you call it, but the byline or the, the tagline that opens up with is something special is afoot, <laughs> which is hilarious. I love that. Uh, so right now, if you go to AveryAndTheSpecialShoe.com, is that where you do the, is that the ordering and yep. everything like that? Awesome. Uh, so as you've been through the process, you mentioned at one point in time, you're like, well, hey, well, maybe this will be meaningful to other people who are dealing with our very specific kind of scenario. Yep. Um, which is, I mean, is not an insignificant number of people, but is also not exactly a mass market appeal. Right. But you obviously also kind of see a broader connection point to a lot of different people in a lot of different situations. What is that broader connection point for people? Well, um, we I started talking about like how do I get the word out about this book and the way my sort of communications brain works is just thinking about ways that we could promote it and social media and that kind of stuff. And so the, the route that we're kind of going is, um, everybody has their special quote unquote, what's your special. And, uh, so that when you read this book, you don't think, Oh, I don't wear an AFO. So this isn't me but like, okay, well what if the AFO is not the AFO? 
what if it and it doesn't even have to be you know some kind of physical challenge or it's something about you that you have to reconcile you know like whether it's something that and it could be something that you love that um because part of the point if you read this book is to realize like the, the shoe is not the point of the book right like the the payoff is like the special thing isn't the shoe here the special thing is you this the shoe can't do anything by itself you know you're happy that it helps you to jump in a puddle and ride your bike and whatever else that's all you this shoe's just there to help it doesn't do anything by itself so the whole point is for us to try to help her understand that unique and special are all good things um and so I, I'm, I think that it, my hope would be that it's a, a specific story that gives people an opportunity to have a very universal conversation um, about themselves or people they know that, you know, what's... So I kind of, um, I asked her brother, you know, hey, what's your special? And he was like, oh, I'm pretty good at hockey and... I'm bigger and taller than most of my friends, and I like that. And so we just had a conversation about what makes you, you, and how is that, you know. So I guess my hope would be that um, it would be an opportunity for people to um, look at themselves. And um, and maybe if it's a case where it's uh, learning about somebody else that's, uniquely different special in some way that it sort of demystifies that conversation and keeps it about the person and not whatever the event is you know so it so it's not you know let's talk because this isn't a cp textbook it never mentions cp it's nothing about does it never does it never say the actual cause no it's not like well here's what happened in your brain or here's why whatever it's just like here's here's who avery is she's special right uh this is just a part of what that means so if it can help other people have that conversation. She brought, when the book arrived, she brought it to school and her teacher read it to her class and she was really proud of it and that kind of I thing. Bet, so, yeah. so in that con, like my perfect version of that is there's a grade one class and Avery's part of it and they're just like, oh yeah, that's Avery. She has a special shoe. So what do you want to do for recess? Like that, that's just, you know, Jane has red shoes and Bill has a hat and Avery has a special shoe and that's that, that everybody's different. So right. big deal. Right. Um, I guess I should mention as part of the early journey is before I ever even explored the idea of this being something that existed beyond our house is I had a conversation with Avery because part of um, her and uh, her mom and I have always kind of said that ultimately this is her story. It's not ours. And right. so we want to be very careful that she owns it and as much of it as she wants to say not say whatever she wants to do with it is up to her kind of sure. thing so i had a conversation and said what if there was a book that kind of talked about your special shoe and talked about you a little bit what would you think she thought that would be cool and i was like what if other people read it like if you took it to school and so i got her her enthusiastic support or whatever and if i didn't then we wouldn't be here today right. i guess but um so yeah i just as an aside that was a definitely a piece of the puzzle for sure it kind of makes me think of songwriting again which is uh something that i i feel like and you probably would concur that if you want something to have universal appeal um the best path is not to try and write it 
universally. Hmm. It'll usually just end up sort of shallow and vague. Um, usually the best thing is to write it as specific about your experience as you can. Mm-hmm. And that often is the connection point for other people. Because there, there are songs that I feel really connected with that I have heard that reference details that make no sense to me. Maybe they say somebody's name that I don't know or an activity that I don't do. Right. But because they went specific, mm-hmm. like their um, honesty with the feelings or whatever it is they're trying to portray mm-hmm. were so much more clear that that was a, a connection point for me or whatever. Whereas Absolutely. if they just tried to explain the universal human experience, it would just be of no value, right? Like you just grab, grab text from a philosophy textbook. Yeah. That's the, I mean, most of the time, I mean, I, I was, I'm woefully bad at it. That's part of the problem. But like the, I, I've always heard that it's kind of like a country music versus a rock and roll music kind mm. of an ethos, which is that country music is about storytelling. Uh, but I mean, these are broad generalities, but I think if you look at the most successful examples of it you can kind of see it like they do get into these incredibly nitty-gritty details and uh but you are able to extrapolate out from the specific you can't really go from the broad to the general very easily you can't be like i kind of hear what you're you're saying and so i'll kind of i'll contextualize it for my own particular life Mm -hmm. you can kind of be like oh i definitely see what you're saying and so i understand the i feel the vibe of what you're kind of getting at by being specific uh, yeah, that's interesting. And I also love the idea that this book, I think you're kind of doing two things. One, you are giving people an opportunity if they have something quote unquote special in their life, which everybody does. But I think largely the reason with the impetus behind this book is not just that everybody has something special is that a lot of people do have something that is viewed as a unique thing that is also a challenge for them. Either, so either by the world or by them. Yeah, right? exactly. Either way. Mm-hmm. And so for them, it's helping them kind of understand that, you know, demystifying that in some respects, I guess for them. But then the, the second thing is that it demystifies it for other people. And mm-hmm. so even if you like, if you're Rowan, like Rowan, uh, you're viewing your special thing as being a little bit taller than everybody else and being good at hockey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not likely going to get him in, in a lot of hot water or make him be looked down upon by other people. Right. But he can at least then also have the benefit of saying, but other people who sometimes have things that they view as a challenge, it, it doesn't make them lesser. And it gives me an opportunity to kind of get inside their world through this really specific story and mm-hmm. view them both special and normal at the same right. time. Yeah. And in Rowan's case, like that would be, I would call that conversation like step one into a broader conversation where it's like it, it opened the door to say, I'm going to look at myself and analyze my thoughts and feelings about me a little bit so he started with like oh i guess i'm pretty good at hockey i like being taller than people whatever else so like okay so we circle back into that again and go a little further and then maybe it unlocks a way for him to say something he's never said before like i don't like that this or whatever and then okay let's talk about that and let's use this as a maybe you know and and the other thing is like i have all these sort of um it would be cool if things surrounding this book, the truth is, I don't know. I don't know if it'll resonate that way. I don't know if it'll work that way. I've had, you know, pretty good feedback from people who've seen it so far. And, uh, but I guess kind of we'll find out. (laughs) Well, like I said, you definitely are going to want to take a look at it. And I think that if you have a young person in your life or anybody, I mean, 
you're most likely connected to somebody who is a young person in your life, and Christmas is always coming. So Avery and the specialshoe.com, get in on the ground floor of this. You want to be an innovator, definitely check that out. Now, uh, Jeff, I'd be remiss if I didn't spend at least a few minutes of my time with you. Uh, as somebody who is uh, further afield, further down the field uh, in, in the realm of worship leading than I am. You've been doing it in the game for a long time, mm. decades. You know. <laughs> You've led worship across the country in various <laughs> locations. Uh, and so uh, I, uh, as you know, I'm part of a team that released some, we've been working for the last two years on a project and we released some of this information. So again, we're recording this on Thursday, April 13th. And two days ago, it went live uh, and the, the way that it went live is it went live on our website, which is worshipleaderresearch.com. We decided that we did want to have like a primary vehicle source so that we could kind of control the narrative of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, the team is built with a number of people, but uh, myself and Michael Tapper were uh, people who kind of helped bring some of these other people together because we had done a project, I guess, what amounts to almost three years ago now. Uh, on the life curves of songs, so how quickly uh, worship songs kind of rise and fall mm, in that was interesting. the life cycle of a church. And uh, that's, uh, we didn't have a primary source for that. So the, the primary source was through Worship Leader Magazine in, in the U.S., and then in Canada was through uh, Faith, what's it called? Faith Today, mm-hmm. uh, which is the uh, Evangel- Evangelical Fellowship of Canada's magazine. So we kind of had like write-ups in those things where we had the ability to write it, um, but at the end of the day, we were both beholden to their timetable and also to, ironically, uh, which does kind of tie in well with this conversation, the graphics that ultimately they were the ones that wanted to put in. We, we had no say, right. uh, ultimate say on what the graphics were going to be. And <laughs> before we started recording, I said, Jeff, have you had a chance to see this stuff yet? And you, you, you said, admit it. And, completely understandable you said i saw the graphics <laughs> <laughs> and so the graphics do they they tell a tale right like if it was all red colors or whatever it'd be like oh they're angry about this uh but it, it, it it's really important because it helps frame the narrative in terms of what people actually see so we really wanted our opportunity an, an opportunity to help kind of control the narrative this way but also we knew that just by putting up a website um and putting data on it nobody will just magically find their way there very few people are googling worship data research that's not the case right so if it doesn't end up in their inbox or on their social media feed in some way then it will lie there dormant so we knew it had to be um going out through both our our own kind of social media uh, but also had to go through news media in some respects and so we have been working in advance with a guy named bob smiatana who's over at religion news service which is kind of like an I don't know a lot about this, but I think of it kind of as like the, the Christian version of the Associated Press. Mm-hmm. So they kind of just like end up having people who write, for lack of a better word, non-branded kind of news articles. And then different news media pick up those articles and they can either use them as a source to then kind of tweak and rewrite an article or they can just kind of really copy and paste it and then just cite the author at the bottom, which is largely what ended up happening. So that went. we've been working with them uh, in an interesting way that we were able to kind of meet with them for like a, a month or so in advance. He's able to interview us. Um, but I learned this new thing called a news embargo, which is huh. fun. So that means that we explicitly say you're not allowed to report on this until this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we wanted to go live on that Tuesday, which is what the, the 11th of April. And we did. So it means that our website went live that morning. Our social media went live that morning. 
and we shared our primary article. So kind of what we did is we have um, we did a bunch of research into charts placements, and then we also did a, a big survey, which I believe you you were a part of. Took we we interviewed like 450 mm-hmm. uh, worship leaders by a survey, and so we're kind of having two phases of the research. The first one is just like what what is the kind of analytical data saying about worship charts, uh, which is really what we ended up releasing the other day. And then the, the phase two of it is going to be how do worship leaders for the most part feel about the kind of worship songs that they're uh, encountering and leading. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're calling our kind of attitudinal study. So that's coming out later on. But the, so the first initial thing that which went live on Tuesday was just the first article. We've got two or three more from this phase of the study that will be coming out over the next month or so. And then we have some more that will be coming out after that. But very precious few people saw our actual post on worshipleaderresearch.com. Many, many more people saw the post from Religion News Service. It got spread about a bunch of different locations, not least of which was Christianity Today and a bunch of other people who just essentially copy and paste it and blah. Um, And at the end of the day, even though there was an embargo and an agreement upon when it was going to go live and multiple interviews and email exchanges, at the end of the day, the the author of that article was not us. It was Religion News Service, right? And they were able to title it, to put graphics on it, and to spin it the way that they wanted to. And so it was unfortunate in some respects that mm. it was got it got it had a, a more negative tone possibly than we would have wanted it to have had, and it's had a bit of well not a bit of, quite a lot of kind of pushback, both on the actual articles themselves from the various, it's, it's become almost impossible to track all the locations where it is. That's so part of my role in this last half of the project has been to help keep an eye on the social media aspect of it, which has been more taxing than I would have imagined that it would have been. Um, because it, it kind of just goes in like there's a German version of it, that, which I can't even read. There's French versions of it that are in different locations. Um, but at least in the primary locations, we're able to see the tenor of the, the comments are a little bit wild. I think in, in some respects, at the very least. Um, and I think it's partially because they didn't read the prime. They didn't actually read our article. Mm-hmm. They read the interpretation of our article mm-hmm. with the headline of which was something like, if, in various ways because what they'll do is they'll take the initial article from RNS and, but they can retitle it so different people are saying different things with the title the content being the same but it's often saying something like if you think that all modern worship music sounds the same it's probably because it does mm. like those kinds of things um, and the initial finding was that we we got a chart from uh, we looked at charts including CCLI and praise charts so we had done a lot of work with CCLI in the past, but we found that that was kind of like, it is only one sliver of the, the world. Like not everybody uses CCLI, um, which we acknowledge going into this. But then also the planning center charts, or sorry, the um, praise charts charts. We wanted to get access to planning center stuff, but we couldn't quite do that. Uh, is it, it, we, we thought it would be a little bit more robust because there are different kinds of churches that use that. Uh, and so we looked at the top songs from both of those and figured out which ones they were they're overlapping and then we only looked at the decade between 2010 and 2020 we wanted to kind of get it and that means songs that were released during that time that's something else because a lot of people were bringing forward exceptions that were written before uh, and, and you know calling the question in the study 
helping study into question. But we looked at just songs that were released during that decade, um, and then songs that highly chart top, top 25 from both of those, so the crossover between those ones. Um, and so the idea being that there were 38 songs, and that 37 of them were able to be traced back to four kind of like megachurch movements. Um, now, that also meant that I think there was five or six or seven of them, those songs, that had to be, there was some work that was done to trace them back to that. So two kind of major pushbacks that came were, hey, what about In Christ Alone? Like that, that one particular song was mentioned a number of times. Uh, and we kept having to say, but that was not released during that time frame. It was an older song. Uh, but the other one was, hey, what about Waymaker? Uh, what about Build My Life? That was not written by Bethel that was not written by Passion. Accurate. Um, but the, the point is, is that the way that we've looked, the songs were actually pretty old. Like the, Both of those songs in particular, and we're able to do this work for all of the exceptions that were brought up. Um, they, they were written well before they started to chart. They started to chart when one of these churches in particular recorded a cover version of that song and then immediately after that, you see them hit the charts. And so the, the idea is that these churches have platformed that song by mm -hmm. including it in the rotation. So they're not the writers of it, but the writers themselves benefited from the platform of these mega megachurches. Um, so those are nuanced conversations, both of those things that didn't really fit very easily in the headline that seemed to be some sort of angry. And the other thing is, we actually aren't angry about it. <laughs> there's, no, there's no value judgment that's being made. It's just being like, it, this seems to be something that we have noticed. So lots of people are... One of the funniest comments I saw was, um, <laughs> you know, the Psalms didn't have a lot of authors either. <laughs> Solid point. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, man, I mean, Bible drop. You know, what are you gonna, what are you going to say with that, right? right. Um, and so, it, it definitely has highlighted the fact that a, it is a lot easier to look at graphics and headlines than it is to read even a pretty condensed article, um, because every time when we just referenced back to the methodology that we had, it either stopped the conversation or it. So oh, now I understand what you're doing. So just like we have these initial gut reactions and I'm, it's, I do the exact same thing. I read headlines. I don't have time to read news. Are you kidding me? I go on CBC and I just kind of scroll through headlines just to get a gist of what's going on. But I hope that I'm somebody who doesn't then make significant assessments of the world based upon those headlines. So this is something that's, that's been helpful for me to realize that I'm like, it only gives you so much. Right. It's the it's the picture. It's the illustration uh, behind the the, the uh, if, if somebody only looked at the pictures of this book that you have in front of you, it would give you a gist, but it may or may not actually give you the content of what needs to be conveyed by this particular mm -hmm. story. Right. You need both. So understanding that kind of like before you develop deep personal feelings about any particular topic, just try to actually engage with the topic as it needs to be engaged with. Um, and then um, the other thing is that it shows that people do feel, people who are in this, I mean, some people who are listening to this are like, I don't care about this at all. But if you're in the worship world, um, it seems like a lot of people really care about this. Uh, and that was, like, the, it, it, it hits them for mm -hmm. some reason where they live. When you just kind of put this statistic in front of them, if they react either 
which a lot of people did saying, ah, see, I knew it was, it's totally right. It's crazy. Whereas a lot of people were like, why are you trying to tear down these church movements? Like, why are you a deconstructionist or whatever? All these kind of, it's like, and this is just by presenting data. So it shows that people are very deeply invested in how this happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just wanted to take a few minutes to, you know, air, air that dirty laundry a little bit here. Sure. <laughs> Cause it's real and raw. Um, Cause you know, it's just beginning, right? We're going to have more more stuff that comes out, but uh, I don't anticipate that you have any necessarily that you have to have anything to respond to that. But I'm, I'm obviously always very interested in your, uh, your wisdom in general, but you, as I said, you have a lot of experience and a lot of thinking in this world. So if you have any thoughts that you want to hop in on, we've got a couple minutes left that we can do that. But yeah, I mean, I think you're right that like, the whole like just across culture the clickbait thing is you know everybody is reading a headline and forming an opinion on stuff that isn't actually the whole story like that certainly is happening in more cases than this one um and I, I look, I do look forward to actually taking the whole thing in. But in my, as I was kind of flipping through the infographics to kind of, there was, I had a bunch of reactions. One of them was whatever the opposite of surprise is, I guess. Like it was sort of, I'm sure you guys had the same experiences. Like we have a hunch and mm-hmm. it was confirmed with a few interesting things. But also now we have the empirical data to sort of show what we all wondered was right. the case or whatever. I, <clears throat> I think it's, it, um, like data is kind of neutral, right? It's supposed to be. So you guys collecting that and making it consumable. I mean, I'm sure you have theses connected to it and thoughts that you would extrapolate from it and opinions and stuff. But generally speaking like the headline of this is supposed to be here's what the data says and then all of us together are meant to go okay so what like what what does that say what do we need to do with it and Mm -hmm. so some of the initial questions that were coming up for me as I was reading it was I guess the first one was like that am I surprised and does it track with what I thought and for the most part I guess it kind of did and then I was kind of like does this not matter, but what what am I what do I need to do with this as a local church leader? Mm-hmm. And there's like there's a bunch. It seemed like there was a bunch of coins that popped up that had two sides. One of them would be on one hand, I was like, it it's sort of a unique. If we want to look at it this way, it's a unique point in history where if we want to lift our heads up and look around a little bit and realize that like the global church is singing a lot of the same stuff in a way they probably never have through the course of history that, um, and there can be some upside to that, to just think that like, you know, there was a hymn book, sure, but now in a way that probably never have, or like on a Sunday morning, I'm, our congregation is singing the same words and the same song as a church in, Texas and Spain or in wherever, you know, in, in a lot of cases, which can be pretty cool and unifying if you think about it that way. Um, I guess maybe the other side of the coin is obvious by that statement too, which is it puts a lot of responsibility in few hands in that regard. Like if we are all going to 
um, if we sort of, I guess, default our trust to that smaller group, um, then the responsibility they have for what they put in the church's mouth as a worshiping community is is pretty large because <laughs> it can, uh, you know, affect... I think it was it Rich Mullins that said, I can't repeat any sermon I've heard throughout my life, but I can sing you the songs. Like, we remember that stuff it has an influence on theology which i think is something that you guys have even started to study is just how the 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 songs that church learns and sings together how they impact that church's practical theology i guess even probably more so than the teaching in some ways um so who that group of 14 people are that are you know responsible for most of the songs we're singing kind of matters I guess we, sure. we probably need to be um, I don't know I want I don't want to take a cynical approach to it but like awareness of the data is probably important right yeah. but, but then I go and think okay uh, worship leaders like me who are really interested in this kind of thing and want to think it through and process it and that kind of stuff I think like how much does my church know about where these songs come from and is that good, bad, or neutral? Like, mm-hmm. would they be aware? They, they, okay, they know Waymaker, but if I told them that was a Matt Redman song that came out of Soul Survivor, would they know I was wrong? Or would they just say, oh, I didn't know that? Or I tell you, the Nigerian people in my church would know it. Yes. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. That's a one exception, of course. But. And I'm sure there would be people who would say, oh, that's a Michael W. Smith song, right? Yeah. Like, or whatever it might be. That's a Leland song, isn't it? Um, so, again, I don't really have uh, a huge conclusion to draw from that. But that's a piece of the puzzle, too, is is if there's a sliding scale of how much who it is that's behind it matters versus the content and usability of the song. Right. And that they, they need to overlap to some degree uh, um, but to what degree and then I guess maybe the third piece of that chart is how much should do or does it matter that my congregation knows that is it purely the merit of the piece that we use or is the context the creator and uh, maybe the church or the movement that it's connected to matter and how much and Mm -hmm. All of those questions, I think, are... I don't have an answer to give you, but I just think there's something that if you're charged with leading worship for a community over a long period of time, you should chew on and wrestle with. Because you know, there are those stories like the... I guess, was it Michael Bugliamucci and his whole sort of fake cancer journey from years ago? Um, yeah, but that healer song was great. And I would still say it's a great song. And sure. there, I don't have any issue with the truth in it or anything else. But then you're like, okay, so what? Now what do we do, right? Um, but I heard somebody say the other day that by that reckoning, we can't use the Proverbs in our Bible because, right? Sol- because Sa- Solomon was a apostate. Um, but again, that's I feel like that's appealing in a, in a fascinating way to saying that these are like scripture, which I think yep. is a whole other move. That you and that's a, that would be the extreme example of what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, it's but, like, if you have a disagreement or a incongruence with the way that Bethel operates as an organization, mm-hmm. 
I'm not going to tell you where you should land on using their songs or not. I would suggest that you grapple with it yeah. and have an answer for yourself or, or decide. Um, and and I, I get that I've taken the conversation down one tributary of a large river in this whole conversation. But you said too, earlier, right? if you don't get specific, then it doesn't matter. That's right. <laughs> so I guess that's one example of a way that this kind of data could be useful on the ground yeah. for smaller churches, um, which is, again, another tributary is the idea that what do we do with the information that this small group that is responsible for most of these songs, I'm, I'm going to generalize, but are kind of the exception versus the people that are using them or the churches that are using them. Like my guess would be, you guys can find out the data is that like the size scope and just experience of these organizations, the songs are coming from are being used by mostly churches who are not that, you know, size wise or whatever else it is. Sure. So I don't know what to do with that either. Other than I think being aware of it is, um, responsible as far as leadership goes is keeping that context in mind like is so is the question is like is the the machine of that size the price you pay in order to get these universally appealing songs that all of the church wants to use and that that benefit is worth the murky water of you know bumping up against celebrity and those kind of things oh you said the c word i don't know oh man see i knew you'd have some good stuff okay well i'll have i'll have you back uh sometime and maybe we'll 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 dig into this a little bit further once we get further down the journey but yeah i want something you said earlier i think you said uh, at least close enough to this you said data is neutral and i think that i'll close this part of our conversation off by saying at least the people in our research project are aware of the fact that that's technically true but it's only true in a void so it's neutral until you engage with it and so um even though i might have tried to imply earlier that like our release is going to be super neutral it's just when people report upon it they're going to be the ones who are going to kind of try to aggravate the the uh, the wound so that you want to lick it that's that'd be naive that'd be a little bit too altruistic like we we do have things that are coming out with the data because Data is neutral, but it's also dead until you investigate it. Like it just sits there and does nothing. So even when you try to present it as though it's like this is just objective reality, we had to make choices to get to that objective reality to try to understand it. Mm-hmm. So there's you know, like I we don't I, I never would want to try to say that we don't have any kind of access to grind. Even among the five of us in the in the report though, uh, the research team, we have different access to grind. So that's, I think that's hopefully part of the value is that we have different people. Who are trying to approach it with different lenses and for the most part we might grind each other's axes down enough that we're not super axe wieldy by the time we get to actually bringing the, the information out um anyway we'll see yeah but, the data is neutral the people are not right the people that are <laughs> yeah. yeah that's good and uh, like there's only like the here is the data that's it yeah. it has a, a degree of value but nobody like, cares about it like okay 
tell me something that tell me why this matters yeah. so I can agree or disagree with you but force the issue for me to think about it is I think slightly more valuable anyway. I think it's funny too the like I won't get a chance to say this in, in our public posts but I can say it in when I'm doing conversations like this is to people who say like that we're just trying to burn it all down and and we know we don't care about the system or whatever like if they could look at the songs that I led last Sunday at my church they would see that there was a Hillsong song and a Bethel song and a hymn like I'm I'm I'm, I'm a user right. <laughs> I'm in the system right. uh, I have not yet burned it down in, in, in my own context which is something that I have to wrestle with on a, on a weekly basis as I keep working through the stuff um, but I don't think it's as simple as just well now if we see this we have to then go ahead and, and make some sort of a macro global change uh, like you said it's conversations that help us to try to understand I mean each and every one of us are just parts in essentially a broader system right. I don't think we want to think of the church as a set of systems because that kind of like we'd rather think of the church as the bride of Christ which it, it is she is um, but we're also systems right <laughs> so understanding how the systems work together yeah and if your sort of reaction to scrutiny which I'm not even implying is what you guys are doing necessarily at this stage is that sort of defensiveness then might betray some insecurity that might be worth exploring there sure. too right like i if i if i have 100 percent security and clarity about some aspect of myself and somebody you know takes a dig at me that i'm able to just say well i know that's not true i don't need to get wound up about it right but if you're or i could say well let me explore that because i'd want to know if that was true right? i guess that's what i'm saying is sure. like Maybe sure, you're chastising me. That's fine. I get it. Or it's, it's just like, if the pipes inside the wall were leaking, and somebody was like, I think we need to cut this piece of drywall out to get a look at that. Right. In, in that situation, the person who says, stop it. Don't. I love this house. Leave it alone. It's going to be <laughs> fine, is is the crazy one, right? Like, right. it's it's not fun to tear out a piece of your wall and have a look around. But if you really do want it to be better... Because you love the home, right. like let's have a look at the pipes and see what's going on. And again, I'm time will tell. We're talking about maybe more of the perception of your work than actually the tone of your work or whatever. Right. But even if it was sure. what people are commenting and um, online, like wouldn't that be okay too? Like wouldn't you want? Like every time I hear some popular. Uh, non-religious, I guess, is the word I would use. Like a podcast, for example, a conversation drift into church, religion, Jesus, or whatever. I am like, turn it up to 10. I want to hear what, they say. what the outside take is, or sure. what the neutral take, or what the even what the antagonistic take is. Like, right. Not because I'm anticipating that it's going to necessarily sway me one way or the other but i want to hear the conversation i want to know mm. what the critiques are i want to see where the blind spots are and that kind of thing so right. this is not that but it's the same category i guess is like yeah. i want to know like yeah. and i, I want to be at least forced to think about it myself and if i don't land in the same conclusion fine but now at least i have thought it through myself um, so yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it as well 
you're going to read that, and I'm going to read Avery and the Special Shoe, written by Jeff Summers and illustrated by, it's Megan Smith. Megan, she told me when two vowels go walking, the first one does the talking. So There's a great YouTube video you can look at. When two vowels go walking, the first one does the talking. Oh, speaking of country songs, <laughs> I, I will never forget it. My wife is an educa- primary educator. Uh, so I don't remember I the teaching, but I remember the song. So. <laughs> Jeffrey Charles Summers, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me, man. (laughs)